Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free, nearly 600 episodes and counting. All of it is free. If you would like to support this show, throw a few bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think hey, it's really uh, beautiful. Jesus, 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 what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just hey, one Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. Here I am. How are you doing? I'm in Los Angeles. I am back for another episode. It's good to be with you. I have Chip Cheek on the program. Chip Cheek. He's got a novel out, his debut. It's called Cape May. It is available from Celadon Books. It has been earning rave reviews, starred reviews. It has a lot of sex in it, which you don't see enough of, really, in literary fiction. So it, it was uh, great to meet him and great to talk to him. Chip Cheek, his novel again is Cape May. That conversation coming up momentarily. I do have uh, some mail to get to. A listener named Jeffrey writes, Brad, just wanted to share listener feedback on episode 589 with Steve Almond. I really enjoyed this particular conversation as it gave me a lot of food for thought and concern to the struggle of the inner life. I have personally been going through a tough time over the past year, even succumbing to suicidal thoughts for the first time in my life. Not that I would go through with it. I wouldn't. But hearing that voice within me was terrifying, particularly since I'm a dad with a loving, supportive wife. While a part of me wanted to avoid this voice and shun it, instead I made a point to pause and create enough space and awareness to listen, since it was vying for my attention. And I essentially asked myself, what is it you're trying to tell me? In doing so, I realized that there were a number of traumatic occurrences in my life that I had never truly faced head-on that were still festering wounds. It all took place within a two-year period, one after the other, including the death of one of my best friends from brain cancer, my father's sudden diagnosis and death from leukemia, and another close friend's suicide. In between this all, my brother-in-law's family was brutally murdered in an act of gun violence, which created a rage 
within me. Steve hit the nail on the head in talking about our avoidances of our thoughts and my journey over the past few months to address this in myself, even more so than I previously had tried, really resonated with me. On a side note, this is why your novel, Attention Deficit Disorder, continues to hit home for me and why I've read it so many times over the years. It was one of the first books I read after my friend Jeremiah died of brain cancer. It made me feel less alone at a time that I felt entirely alone. I know I've told you this latter part before, but I'm telling you again. I appreciate the words you write and the conversations you have with other writers. They are more than simple words on a page or audio files on the internet. Take care, Jeffrey. So thank you, Jeffrey. This is an unusually uh, honest, embracing letter, and I appreciate the kind words. I I think something that you said strikes me in particular, and that is the way in which we relate to our own traumatic experiences in life and the way that if we live long enough, we all have some. It's unavoidable. We're all going to be traumatized by existence. And when I look back on just about anything creative that I've ever done. It seems to be a response to trauma. I don't know if this is the way everybody does it, but I think it's the way that I do it. And I don't know if I was completely aware of that until recently. So I share that with you, Jeffrey. I share coming to the realization uh, that there is deep trauma to be grappled with. Uh, a little bit late or after the fact or in a delayed manner. Maybe that's just the way it goes. But when I look back uh, in particular on the writing of my novel, I spent my 20s doing that essentially. And it's a novel about suicide grief. It's a novel about other things too, but it's it's a reaction to suicide grief, which, which as many of you know, I, I experienced when I was in college. A buddy of mine took his own life and it was a big shock and a pivotal experience and an overwhelming experience. Probably the the loss, like the experience of loss in my life that had the deepest impact on me. It really shook me at that particular moment in my life. Age what, like 19? What was I? Age 20. And I look back and I'm like, I think that's what I was doing. I never went to therapy, though I should have. But I spent my 20s essentially locked in a room trying to write that book. (laughs) And and you know what? It was good for me. Um, It it did have a therapeutic effect. And the book that I've been working on forever and ever, um, you know, and I still haven't gotten, I don't know if I ever will get, is me grappling with five miscarriages and with my son's diagnosis. He's uh, got some difficult health challenges. But even though that book hasn't come together in a way that I feel great about, it's just a very difficult book to write because there's so much sadness and I don't know how much to reveal. And I just haven't gotten to the place where I feel good about it. And it's really like not a book that I'm in a hurry to work on sometimes just because it's just a, it's a heavy weight, you know, I don't know what the best approach is, but having said that, I still feel like the time that I've spent on it, which has been considerable is far from being time wasted. That's my therapy. And maybe it's not the most elegant form. Maybe there's more that I could use. Almost certainly that's the case. You could always use more, right? But I have done a lot of work. 
And I think there's something to be said for, uh, just as Jeffrey says, instead of shunning the dark stuff or the difficult stuff that comes up, whether it's a suicidal thought or it's deep grief or it's just a kind of persistent ennui, self-criticism, self-loathing, whatever it is, the way through is through. That's what Steve Allman was saying when I had my conversation with him that aired last week. And uh, I think it's wise advice. And writing is certainly a great way to deal with stuff. I guess what's interesting is the way that we can be dealing with stuff in writing without actually knowing the degree to which we're doing so, or even that we're doing so at all. You know, sometimes I think for people who work in a really layered way, imaginatively, they think they're writing a book about Middle Earth or, you know, witchcraft or uh, wizards or something less fantastical that still is at a great degree of remove from their actual lived experience. And then after the fact, you know, you get a little bit of perspective on it and you realize like what you were actually doing. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I could ramble on about this for a while, but I appreciate the thoughts, Jeffrey. Thanks for the, uh, the letter once again and the kind words hang in there and, uh, keep writing it down. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Chip Cheek. He was here uh, you know, not too long ago. Came over, sat down, we talked, and uh, it was just great to meet him. His debut novel, Cape May, is out there now from Celadon Books. And it's a terrific novel. Booklist calls it a remarkable debut novel. Starred review, Kirkus starred review. Kirkus says it feels like a classic. So it's a great um, it's a great way to debut, to say the least. And I'm glad I caught Chip at this particular moment. So here he is, folks. This is Chip Cheek. 
and his novel One More Time is called Cape May. So I grew up in Texas, and I lived in uh, in the New York area for about five years, um, and then I moved to Boston to go to graduate school at Emerson College, um, and that's been home. Uh, it's the place I feel most at home, actually, is in Boston, um, uh, in Somerville specifically. Um, and but we moved out here because this is where my wife grew up, and in the city, in El Segundo. Oh, okay. Um, which is just south of the LAX airport. We can actually see the fins of taxiing airplanes from her driveway. Um, but uh, yeah, so when we had uh, when our daughter was born, we kind of knew we were gonna have to come out here uh, to be with her family and the extra, you know, the the child support and stuff. So it's, so it's no small thing. It's no small thing. And um, you know, the book and the baby happened at the exact same time. You know, so I mean. I finished the book and uh, a month before she was born um, and sent it out to uh, got, got it signed with an agent a month after she was born and a month or two after that it sold. Um, wow. And so it literally happened. It was happening at the same time. Uh, I was, you know, celebrating the book news at like four in the morning while bouncing <laughs> a newborn baby. And it was just totally uh, upended my life, completely changed everything about my life. Um, so how so? Uh, in every way. I mean, we can, we'll talk about that. I mean, when you talk, when we talk about like my writing habits or process, all of that is in the past tense. Cause I have no idea what it is now. Um, it's been almost two years since then she turns two in August. Um, and I still haven't figured it out because six months after she was born, we moved out here. Um, and that was yet another, you know, turning our lives upside down. It is completely different out here. I love it. Um, we're still living with my mother, in law. you know, we, we, we don't have our own place. You know, we're still in this, in this just floating liminal zone you know our lives um and uh and and it's just changed it's been overwhelming yeah it's yeah. a big yeah. I mean, big it adjustment is. it's not mm -hmm. an uncommon story for somebody to work like crazy on a book mm -hmm. with the arrival of a new child impending right <laughs> no that's it's so true because when we found I, I had three good chapters i thought three chapters that i liked on this book and then um katie you know, we got the news that uh, we're going to have the baby. And I was like, oh, shit. Were you <laughs> trying for a baby? Uh, we were. Yes, okay. Yes. So it wasn't like some so, big surprise. No, no, it wasn't a surprise. Um, but when it happens, it's suddenly, suddenly the clock gets really serious. And I blew through the rest of the book in the next nine months. Um, like I said, I finished the draft a month before she was born. And then I gave it to my writing group. And we met about it about a month later. And four days after that meeting, uh, the baby arrived. So, well, what's the birthday? Uh, August 3rd. I'm August 1st. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. my God. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And my, my sisters are in August. My daughter's in August. My anniversary's oh, wow. in August. Everything's in August. Bunch of summer. Let's all get together and have a giant summer <laughs> Just birthday Just knock party. it out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's great. So th this book, um, it's one of the, I think it's a fairly rare story of, uh, it really shot out of you mm -hmm. once you got it, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's a circuitous path, so I don't want to oversimplify right. it. Like you were writing in a vein that was, um, not a fit mm -hmm. for a while right? and sort of working against it and having that, that kind of dread creep in where mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're like, this is really not fun. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Which yeah. I know well. Yeah. And then at some point, I mean, you tell the story mm -hmm. about what was it that turned the drudgery into something where. Um, you were extremely generative and excited and mm -hmm. didn't want to get away from the keyboard. Sure. I mean, I think it really had to, like I, I was, I've taught creative writing for years and I would tell my students, you know, sort of like follow your bliss or some version of that cliche, you know? Um, uh, but it's really hard to follow that model yourself, you know? Um, and I think it was, you know, uh, 
getting so frustrated with writing what I thought was like important, you know, like deep, you know, big literature stuff. Um, and finally getting so frustrated that I no longer cared anymore and throwing it all out and saying, I'm just going to write whatever I want, you know, whatever thrills me. And then ultimately finding that that's actually the stuff that's the good stuff, you know, that I should have been after. So yeah, I, I had been working for uh, a couple of years. I mean, really s several years just trying to write any novel. Um, but I was dealing, I was working with, um, material from my, my family's past. Uh, I'm from Georgia. Um, and my family goes back generations in Georgia. And but so you didn't grow up in Georgia. I didn't grow up and I was born there, but I grew up mostly in, in Houston, Texas, just outside of Houston. Um, but um, I was writing a novel that was uh, right right before I was working on Cape May. I was writing a novel that drew on events from my family's past, and uh, it was a dark, violent novel set in Georgia in the Jim Crow era. Um, and um, the material was good; it was really interesting. But um, you know, I I was spinning my wheels with it. I mean, in anyone else's hands, I mean, it involved like a murder, and you know, in race and class, and in anyone else's hands, I feel like it could have it would have been a riveting book. But I. I would keep getting distracted by love stories. Like I would be like, okay, I'm, I'm, let me try to figure out this character. So, hmm, what's the best way to do that? I'll have him hook up with someone and send them off into the woods and they're going to do something naughty. And I'd be like, wait, that has absolutely nothing to do with this, you know, this murder and race and all that. So I'd be like, okay, backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. Um, so finally, uh, and this happened a couple months after I got married, which is probably not a coincidence. Um, finally, I, for reasons that made sense at the time, I married um, my main character henry to a then minor character effie and i sent them on a honeymoon to cape may new jersey um uh and once i got them there out of their context out of their normal the context they'd been in uh it i, I it was like the sun came streaming through and i just i was i couldn't stop writing i was suddenly i was writing a completely different novel uh, and it was like nothing I'd ever written before. Okay. Was it because you saw the plot or was it because mm -hmm. you just you just loved this world context yeah, the character suddenly became more visible. Like, what was it? You know, what was the sunlight? <laughs> it was it, the sunlight was well. First of all, seeing these characters that I had known for a, a long time, and they're sort of steeped in the rural South. You know, suddenly seeing them in a totally different place, like Cape May, New Jersey, um, and it was the it was the it was the setting and situation. It was these naive characters in a town like Cape May in the off season this desolate town where suddenly the normal rules don't apply. Um, and they can be whoever they want to be. Like the, I think the, the feeling I got both for their characters and for me as a writer was I was in this world with unlimited potential. It's like know, burning man. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and I just couldn't pull myself away. I mean, suddenly where I, I'd been steeped in like cotton fields and, you know, um, in main street in signal Creek, Georgia, um, fictional town, uh, suddenly there were, there was gin and parties and a lot of sex and, you know, and, and, um, and houses to sneak into. And it just, I could not pull myself away from it. It was, it was, there was nothing like I was trying to say. I had no message. I literally just wanted to be in that world. It was thrilling. Um, so I, I remember, you know, Katie and I would be watching TV before going to bed and, and she'd go to bed and I think, okay, I'm just going to check in with my novel. You know, it's be about midnight, you know, I'd be like, I just, just see how it's doing, you know, and I would go and open it up and just play with a paragraph. And then it would be four in the morning, you know, and I'd written 2000 more words. Wow. And I, I just never, I never write like that. I never wrote that way. Um, and I finished that first draft in two months in a, in a fever dream. Um, how many, how many words? Uh, it was 300 manuscript pages, um, almost to the double spaced, double spaced. Yeah. So like it's probably like close to seventy k, right? Something I don't, like yeah, I don't know. Maybe. 
It's still a lot. It was a lot. I mean, I've never written anything like that. I mean, of course it was a train wreck, but it was a beautiful train wreck. I couldn't wait to like revise it and get back to it. Um, so, okay. So let's Mm -hmm. just make sure that people have like an aerial view. Mm -hmm. How long were you working on the version that didn't work? That was like mired in the South. Oh, the previous, I don't even think of that as a version. It was just a totally different novel. I mean, when I, when I sent them to Cape May, it was probably three or four days later, I wrote in my notebook, you know, this is the novel. That other thing is not what, you know, that's not the novel. It was a completely different novel. And, and I was able to sort of dump all those other pages. But um, how long did those other pages long, take you? Yeah. Those other pages, which I don't even know how many of them there would be. Uh, it was two to three years probably of, okay. of grinding through that. And then before that was another two to three years of grinding through another failed novel attempt. Um, but with sim with in a similar world. So um, this is actually, a, uh, I, I think I'm, I was mistaken earlier. This is actually more along the lines of the norm mm-hmm. than like, cause mm-hmm. it wasn't just like it came to you and then it shot out of you. It no, was like, no. this is like after false starts, mm-hmm. two or three years of working on something that didn't work. Right. But then once you got it and that, I, I think the novel that I wrote, it was sort of similar. I mm-hmm. wrote like really bad, mm-hmm. just failed <laughs> piles of pages. Yeah. And then once I somehow got one that sort of worked, it was like four months. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. For a yeah. draft or five yeah. months, you know, right, right. Um, and then revising, but right. um, that's so exciting. So do you have a takeaway? Like, is there any way for you to recreate um, circumstances? Do you feel like you have a formula or like at least a, a like an internal uh, barometer to look for when you're writing now that, that you've experienced it? Right. Nothing. I mean, I, I wrote, I remember writing a note to myself, like, just remember how this feels, you know, um, uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> did um, you, did you, did you carve that into your arm or uh, no, you... well, I wrote it into uh, a little index card that I kept, you know, okay. tucked in, you know, yeah. um, uh, but I mean, it's silly. I mean, but I, I it, it's, it's important. I think it's, it was helpful to me because like, if I'm grinding through something and it doesn't feel like fun, um, you, I, I know that this may not be the thing, I, but I may need to like stick with this until I, I wait for the thing that, that shines, you know, um, I'm being very inarticulate about this, but, but it's to like, don't despair maybe is, is maybe the, what the note means, you know, which is like, um, just keep working. Like I'm not waiting for inspiration. It's the, the point is to keep showing up at my desk and like working and grind through the process until, until the light comes in, you know, and something hits and then, and then all the, I may do this for two years and everything I wrote may be dumped. Um, but that's okay because I got to this thing and it's totally worth it. And knowing when to, to dump mm-hmm. a lot of work mm-hmm. that can be tough for people. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, well, wait, you know, like, cause there can be the, I think people can get confused myself included by this notion of persistence and not giving up. Yeah. Like yeah. at some point, sometimes you have, it's, it's wise mm-hmm. to give up. Mm-hmm. You're on a path. that's not working. You mm-hmm. need to recognize it as such. Right. Maybe take, either what you've learned or take whatever, um, gold you can mine mm-hmm. from that, that pile of pages and mm-hmm. then move on with it and yeah. start in a new direction. Right. Right. And I mean, you don't, re- I mean, it's not like you're really going to lose anything. You know, you put it in a file, you know, you can always come back to it. Um, but I've never, um, felt sad about dumping anything. I mean, I feel like it's really exciting to try a new direction, you know, and, and sometimes I think I'm a really slow writer, but then it's, it's not that it's that the good stuff is so few and far between when I find the good thing, I'm actually a very fast writer, you know, and a faster, I can be a fast revisor too. So, so I don't despair that like, Oh my God, I've been working for 
two years and I have, you know, nothing, you know, and when I find it, is it going to be like, does that mean it's going to be six years before I have a, you know, uh, something that's good? And it's like, no, it could be like three months from now, you know, before you have kind of a completed rough thing, you know, um, potentially. So, um, but there's no like dread of like, Oh my God, I got to start over on page one. No, no. Because I mean, you start in the middle of things, you know, I didn't know where, you know, Kate May, I didn't just, I don't know when I started working on it. You know, it started, I guess, with the decision to send them to, well, it was the decision to marry those two characters. So, I mean, the first draft of Kate May actually begins with their wedding. Um, so I, you start with the most exciting thing and you just, I don't start with an intro or a prologue, you know, you just jump in. Um, and that's what you're taught to do anyway. Right. So um, like start in the middle of the river, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And start where it's most exciting to you and go. And then if, if at the end you realize, oh, that's, that wasn't the right starting place, then you can obviously go back and, you know, in, in revision and rewriting, change it. But were you yeah. working, I mean, you were working in kind of a, uh, I guess there's a tradition of honeymoon novels. Mm, sure. Yeah. Were you yeah. aware of that? Like, was that something that was on your mind as you were writing this? Or is it something that like retroactively you sort of go, Oh yeah, there's yeah. A, there's like a set of these out there. Right. Of- retroactively. I mean, I'm vaguely aware of it. I mostly knew about on Chesil beach, um, which I did not read. I pointedly didn't read until I'd finished the book. Um, which is Ian McEwan. Yeah. Ian McEwan's book. Um, and so, yeah, so, but I wasn't super, I didn't want to be like, I wasn't playing against, form or type or anything like that. I just, I was writing it blind <laughs> to all that stuff. And you, did you have any sense of an ending? Were you just making it up as you went or did you have a target that you were headed towards? Um, I knew I had a sense of like how I was going to end the book. And to some extent I, I knew, well, I don't, I don't know if I don't really care about spoilers, but, um, I, I knew they would stay together. Um, and I knew that the la- I knew the move I was going to pull the last chapter where it kind of opens up to the rest of their lives. I had a sense of that. Um, but otherwise I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I had a, I had a setting and such situation and characters that I was interested in and tension, you know, sources of danger. And I felt like that's, that's all I needed. You know, um, it's like that Yale Dr. O quote about, you know, writing a novel is like driving in the dark with your headlights on. You can only see so far, but you can get the whole way there. You know, and it's kind of how I felt writing this book. Yeah. And, and, um, Human relationships are just fundamentally odd, especially yeah. like intimate human relationships. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's something that comes to mind, mm-hmm. um, both as a reader and as a, a married person and as, just as a person in mm-hmm. general, um, like living with another human being, yeah, yeah. making that commitment. Yeah. Um, like the, there's a fundamental unknowability mm-hmm. to another human, no matter how well yeah. you think you know them, right? no matter how much time you've spent. Um, we all carry all this... Um, static mm-hmm. internally mm-hmm. and i don't know yeah. if you could ever fully tease it out of somebody right right or or have it teased out of you you mm-hmm. know we're, mm-hmm. we're sort of like um closed systems in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so it's just i mean it's inherently interesting you know moment um especially in this time period that it's in because it's like oh yeah the book is set in 1957 1957 yeah and so they're uh getting married in a time when people, especially women were expected to be married at a very ridiculously young age. So it's not even that they don't know each other. I mean, they they can't know each other, but they don't even know who they are. They have no, I mean, they're, they're not formed, fully formed adults. The the whole notion of anything, like even a remotely virginal Mm -hmm. honeymoon has always seemed nightmarish to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, right. <laughs> like I can't imagine anything more awkward and like, just like, no, that's yeah. not how it's supposed to go. No, yeah. It's a totally uh, terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess sometimes it can work, but yeah, man, like that's, but, yeah, but that, well, that's what, that was part of what was so interesting about the situation of the book. And I wanted to just go deep in on that, you know, really, really intimately explore, you know, more or less good, well-intentioned people who, 
trying to, you know, navigate this situation. And I wanted to tell it from, um, you know, a, a, a perspective, um, that was more intimate than anything I'd seen before, you know? So, you know, for example, you know, their first night, you know, he is lying there in bed feeling a bit gassy and worrying he's going to fart in the night with her, you know, and that's like a legitimate <laughs> concern. Your first, because when you think about, I'm, mar I'm married to this person who, you know, I've always been brushed my teeth and been very clean before going on dates. And now suddenly I, I have to go to the bathroom and she's here and the bathroom's right over there. And like, I mean, that I never thought about that before. Like, how are we going to navigate this? You know, like what, how do, how do we be cool like this? And, and she has her, you know, cream on her face and, you know, like, those are the kinds of things you're suddenly like, Oh wow. There's these little details of well, like real physical intimacy. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what about writing sex scenes? Mm -hmm. Uh, because you don't shy away. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, did you study? Like, this is something that I would be mm -hmm. like worried about because there's like the bad sex and literature award. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's like a really, it seems like a really uh, easy thing to screw up mm -hmm. or at least it's, it's like easy for people to mock. Like, did you care? Right. I guess you just have to shut that out and just write it. I did. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I'd mentioned earlier with the previous novel attempts, you know, I kept sending people off into the woods, you know, like I, it was clearly a subject that I was interested in. And so I sort of gave in and my frustration at not being able to, um, finish anything or even get traction on anything finally turned into, well, I don't care what people think anymore. I, if this is literally a trashy sex book, don't give a shit. Apparently that's the kind of person I am. I'm just going to have to reconcile <laughs> you're myself. You're with a it. sick pervert. I'm, sure. I'm a sick pervert. Yeah. If that's what happens, fine. And so I just went full steam ahead. I did not care. Um, and, and wrote the scenes as I, as I, as I thought they should be written is honestly, I mean, I was trying to be as I, I wasn't trying to be hot or anything like that, that no, that I, sex is an action like any other in fiction. So it it's has a honeymoon to be, novel. Of yeah. Well, there's yeah, gonna there's going to be sex obviously. Um, and, but it's, but yeah, I mean like any action, it has to be relevant and, you know, move the plot forward, reveal character, all these things. So I, I knew that. Um, and, uh, I just wrote them as honestly as I could. Um, and, um, and then, you know, uh, suffered over revising them. I mean, they were extremely hard to write, you know? Um, and so it was, it was kind of like fun to like, you know, write them the first time. And then, and then I, you know, in revision, I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and suffered. Did, you, like, did your like wife read it? Like, did she, is she like a reader oh, God, for you? No, no, not at all. No, no, <laughs> no. She's like, honey, honey, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I've been meaning to tell you about this. This is not how that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, is, is, and it didn't even have anything to do with sex. I mean, my, my, my wife is, a um, an incredible reader. Um, and I mean, we also met in grad school. Um, uh, and she's a great writer as well. And, um, so it was more, I just, I didn't want her to divorce me for being not talented. You know, so <laughs> I wanted her to like, I, I wanted to write, make the book as, as good as it could be before I showed it to her. So it wasn't until I actually signed with an agent. Now then I was like, you know, okay, now I feel like this is okay. And I, 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 I understand her, that because yeah, yeah. people have asked me that before. And I'm like, you know, I'm not inclined to share my pages outside of like maybe some sort of writer's group or workshop. Mm -hmm. Yeah until I feel like I've taken them as far as I can take mm -hmm. them to a, to a, right. in a certain sense, yep. like mm -hmm. show them to your agent. That seems like a safe first reader. Mm -hmm. If they think it doesn't suck. Right. <laughs> and it might be like semi safe. Right. And even then it's like, who knows? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so again, I know that your life has been upended by mm -hmm. uh, a new child and the move and everything, mm -hmm. but you know, just with regard to Cape May and this fever dream that you were in when this draft shot out of you in two mm -hmm. months, um, what did your schedule look like? Like mm -hmm. you were teaching writing workshops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're teaching in Boston, mm -hmm. but like, when did you, how did you work before everything yeah, changed? Sure. Um, so I was, I was 
teaching, but my primary job was I was um, the head instructor at an organization called Grub Street in oh, right. Boston. Yeah. Um, that's Steve Allman teaches there, um, uh, among uh, many other people. Um, but um, it's an amazing organization. Um, but I uh, I um, was, was in charge of hiring and you know m- managing the instructors there um, and supporting them. Um, and it was a part-time job. So uh, I didn't have to be in the office until 1. So it would be 1 to 6 <clears throat> is when I worked there. Uh, Monday through Friday. And so I would get up really early uh, in the morning at, the, at that time. I would get up at like five and go for a run and then uh, to wake myself up and um, and write anywhere from six to seven until about 11 o'clock or so and then shower, have lunch and go to work. Um, so I had a ton of time. I mean, my I've always my I have always built my professional life in a, in a way that I could do the writing, you know, to, to build it around the writing. And so, uh, before that job, I'd actually left my, um, uh, a previous job to freelance, do freelance copy editing and teaching. Um, and then the, uh, uh, opportunity with Grub Street came along and of course I snatched it up because then it'd be more stability and I wouldn't have to sort of hustle for a paycheck. Um, um, so that was, that was my schedule. That's um, a great mm-hmm. job for a writer, mm-hmm. especially yeah. like a childless writer. And mm-hmm. yeah. you know, you just oh, have yeah. you in control of your time, mm-hmm. but that's like, it's like a nice, like symbiosis between mm-hmm. writer stuff and yeah, yeah. making some dough. Definitely. It was, it was really great. I mean, they, for, for, for a time there, it was really working well together. I mean, it, uh, um, I, I remember, you know, even just the commute in was great because I'd have been working all morning and then I would walk 20 minute walk to the, to the T and get on the train and, you know, 30 minutes into the city and all that time I'm churning through what I had been working on in the morning. You know, it's like, that's part of what, you know, the, um, the feeling of bereavement I'm feeling right now is that I don't have a problem. I'm constantly turning around in my head. Like I love that, that feeling of working, actively working on a, on a, on a novel, especially one that you really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, You know, where you're just like, wow, this is like a fun place to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I, those days were just great. Um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, right before we learned that we were going to have a baby, actually, I, I left the job, the Grub Street job, because it was, um, it was getting a little bit too, it was too time consuming. The, the responsibilities were growing and growing on it. And so, so I left the job, um, to do freelance again. My wife, uh, luckily had, um, she had a really good job at the time, um, that was able to sort of support us for the interim where I could finish this novel. Cause I was really determined at that point. Um, to finish the novel because I knew we were trying to have a baby and then thank God, you know, I had that freedom because when we realized, you know, we were going to have one, I had the freedom to just sort of dedicate everything to it. Um, and so that's what I did. I don't know what I would have done, you know, if things hadn't worked out the way they, they would. I mean, I would just, um, um, yeah, I don't know. It takes a little luck Mm -hmm. and you know, you you have to have lucky circumstances Mm -hmm. to have the time to write. Yeah. I mean, just the, just the ability to sit down with any degree of regularity Mm -hmm. and work imaginatively Mm -hmm. is an enormous privilege. It really is. Which is easy Mm -hmm. to lose sight of when Mm -hmm. you're like pissed off at your book and exactly struggling. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Um, so you get this, so this draft comes out of you in two months and then you had to revise for about two to three years. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, I su- I, I tell the story about like, Oh, it just came out like nothing. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I really suffered over the revision. Um, and and I mm-hmm. think I read somewhere that you, you messed with point of view. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That I was did like the big fix or a big change. It was one of, yeah, a few, but, um, but maybe, maybe the biggest change I guess would have been the point of view because the previous novel I'd been working in first person point of view. Um, and so, uh, a lot of most of the first draft of Kate May was in the first person. Um, and I quickly realized afterwards that that was never going to work. Like, 
it was too intimate for first person. It needed to be third person, which was the more intimate point of view. Um, so, so I rewrote well, it. In so. Um, in first person, there's always this little voice that's saying, why are you telling me this? You know, what, what's your agenda here? Why are you telling me this story? And in the kind of story I was telling, um, with Kate May, it's so intimate that that question quickly becomes like, Ooh, I mean, like really, why are you telling me this? Like TMI back off? You're like, <laughs> I don't want to hear about that. You know? Um, I, I, I think I always, I always say I'm paraphrasing Jennifer Haig when I say this, I think it's true. Um, with third person, you can show what people are doing when they don't think anyone's watching. Um, and that was important for this novel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's like a novel of bad behavior and yeah. awkward and farts and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like I have, I, I have to, I, I am constipated, you know, it's that kind of novel and sex is kind of gross, you know, and yeah. And just and weird. It's a little messy and it's weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, okay. So you get through all this and then the baby's coming mm -hmm. and then you go try to find an agent. I mm -hmm. would imagine with your network, um, mm -hmm. grad school, grub street, yeah, you at loaf. least had some yeah. options. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's yeah. so that, what was that process like? Did you just send it in and somebody took it or? I yeah, I did. Um, I, I, I'm so uncomfortable talking about this stuff because I've, I've really struggled for years and years and years, you know? Um, but when it happened, it all happened like, a fairy tale, you know? So I just want to preface this by saying none of this is what I expected and none of this is usual. And now I'm back to normal because I feel like I'm at loose ends with my work and I have no idea what I'm doing anymore. So <laughs> yeah. I'm back to my comfort zone. <laughs> um, but, but when I, so there was an agent, Catherine Fawcett, who was, um, uh, a good friend of mine, Laura Vandenberg's agent, um, oh, yeah. and, uh, and Benjamin Percy's agent. And she's, she, I had met her, uh, several times before at, uh, Grub Street and through Breadloaf, um, writers conference. Um, and she's just a delightful, wonderful, warm, supportive human being, and also a really good agent as I could see from, from the example of, of my friends. And so she was, she was always kind of my dream agent. And so when, uh, the baby fog kind of died down a bit enough for me to make a few edits on the book, um, I polished it up and sent it just to her and, um, with and, and Laura, you know, was able to send her an email, say, Hey, keep a lookout for, you know, Chip's going to send you a book. So, you know, I kind of got that advantage. Um, but yeah, she wrote back a, f a week or so later and said, I'm so glad, you know, or, or no, no, just a few days later, I think she said, I'm so happy to have you sent me this book. Um, my inbox is really, really, you know, loaded as you can tell. So just give me, you know, be patient. And I said, of course, don't worry about it. Um, an hour later, she said, um, I read the first 50 pages and I can't stop. Can you please send the rest of the book? And so I sent her the rest of the book. And like a couple of days later, she said, let's do this, you know? And, um, and, uh, and we worked together a little bit on some, some edits. Um, uh, we sent it out, um, and it sold within 24 hours after that. Um, wow. so At auction or a, a preempt actually wow. we sent it out to 15 editors and, and, um, Celadon, which is this, um, <clears throat> new imprint of Macmillan. Uh, I was their first purchase in fact. Um, and, uh, they made a preemptive offer on it. So good for you. It was just like, what, where were you when you got the news? Um, I was in, I was, I was in a dark room, uh, at home with our baby. Uh, and Katie was out somewhere at a doctor's appointment or something. And the baby was napping and I was just praying that she would stay napping while my agent and I discussed this phone rang. <laughs> yeah. The phone rang. Yeah. yeah. I always say uh, like good news comes via phone. Bad news comes via email. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> and so I had hours to decide, you know, whether we take this or not. Um, and I remember when, you know, Katie came home and we discussed it and, you know, I, you know, Catherine and I were texting about it and I said, let's do this. <laughs> and suddenly my life was changed. That's so it's, great. It's just like, not how, I mean, 
it's just not how I expected this to go. I mean, I thought this novel, it is, it's just a little tender novel of feelings. You know, I certainly didn't think of it as a beach read, um, which is, you know, of course, how they're going to market it. And that, that, that's what they saw. They saw, oh, God, oh yeah, we can, we can, we can sell this. Um, but that's not what I was thinking at all. Um, I would have been happy with a small press. Exa- I'm ecstatic. You're like, this is a tone poem. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I was in a complete state of shock and, and continue to be, I think. And then foreign rights sold too. foreign rights sold. We sold, we've sold in, it's in six or seven languages now. Um, in, have you added that to your bio? I I should, his work has been translated into seven (laughs) languages. Yeah, I should. No, it's not. Yeah. yeah. Um, this podcast has been translated into uh, 44 languages. Right. Those, those editions are starting to come in and it's really exciting. Those are really, you know, the German and French and Danish editions have come in and it's just so cool. It's so cool. Yeah. 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 And you get like, have them on your shelf, like a little, like, mm-hmm. you know, you got to. Yeah. Yeah. And the UK and Australia, New Zealand editions are all, I mean, that's all kind of the same publisher, but different formats like or different covers. Um, and that's been really, really exciting. Do you, uh, are you going to do any kind of foreign tour or have you done? No, there's no, I mean, there's no plan for one. Anyway, I haven't heard anything about it. Um, and I really haven't done, you know, my publishers put all their money into advertising and marketing. And so they're not sending me on a tour. I've done a few dates here in LA and I did a bookstore and I did, a. Um, uh, just this past weekend in Newtonville books in in Boston, which is just, I adore that store. And so I did an event there, which was great, but yeah, it's like hometown. Mm-hmm. hometown. Totally. Like yeah, re- yeah. Return yeah. of the conquering it, it, hero. It felt like a homecoming. <laughs> yeah. Like I rode in on a horse. I was holding a sword. It's awesome. <laughs> there should be more authors riding to right. their first, you know, their, their like celebratory uh, book launch on a horse. Right. <laughs> and you know, I think too, when it comes <clears throat> to you talking about your publisher, not doing a big tour, mm-hmm. um, I think about this a lot and I guess maybe there's just no easy answer. Otherwise mm-hmm. somebody would, would be doing it. But you know, I get sent a ton of books. Mm-hmm. I get a million emails and it's always the same. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, um, template, you know, like a form letter basically Yeah. tucked inside of a galley or a finished mm-hmm. book, just sent to my door, not like dear Brad, nothing mm-hmm. personal. Maybe even like an, like an, you know, a printed signature. It's not yeah. even, you know, like there's, it's just so impersonal. And I'm mm-hmm. like, is this really the best that, that can mm-hmm. be done? And mm-hmm. for my show, since I do it almost entirely in person, I'm always like, I'm always looking at the one sheet. Like, well, what's the tour? Where's mm-hmm. the tour dates? Yeah. Are people coming to LA? Cause there's yeah. nothing to talk about if they're not going to be here. Mm-hmm. I can't have them on the show unless they come to town. And so yeah. you're not even letting me know. Yeah. So they haven't even thought it through. They're just like mass mailing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I know that these houses have uh, streamlined and, you know, money is tight mm-hmm. and they can't, but there's got to be a better way. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to publicizing a book or uh, marketing a book, like what's the most effective uh, expenditure of money? Is it on mm-hmm. a tour? Is it on print advertisement and the New Yorker mm-hmm. right. or the New York Times book review? Right. I should have somebody like a marketing person on the yeah. show. I'd be curious. I would love, I would love to tune into that. <laughs> yeah, episode. I think a lot yeah. of writers would, maybe I'll try yeah. to do that. I've got to figure out who it would be. Yeah. I, I mean, I have no idea, you know, and I, I thought, I never thought about this stuff. I never thought about publishing or marketing or publicity. I never, totally never thought I would have to think about that. And I thought if I did ever have to think about it, I would have plenty of time to learn and grow and all that. Um, instead, that's just not what happened. Suddenly I had to start thinking about it and I'm totally ill-equipped to do this. I realize I hate, I can't, brag. I hate it. I feel like even just talking about this, the process of having the book, how, how the book was sold and all that stuff. I feel like a jerk. You know, I feel like, I feel like I can just hear, 
younger me saying like, Ooh, you're so cool. You know, I you're guess like you the orphan that. that got adopted. And, Everyone else is at the orphanage. Like, fuck you. Yeah, dude. I know. And uh, yeah, that, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't even know how to be, I don't know how to, you know, I just try to be myself as much as authentically as I can, you know, but, but I don't know how any of this works. Um, well, I think most authors yeah. feel that way. There's a lot of mystery, mm -hmm. uh, to the process and how these decisions get made and, I don't mm -hmm. think even the people who are making the decisions would probably tell you like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, th I used to think about this with regard to film reviews, uh, but it applies mm -hmm. to so many, I mean, it can apply in so many different contexts, but I was always like, what kind of mood was the person in? I feel mm -hmm. like they should write that into the review. Right. You're right. <laughs> like I had a fight. I had a fight with my significant <laughs> other that morning. Yeah. I felt like a fucking asshole. Yeah. I got three hours of sleep, you know, I spilled my coffee and then I went to the screening just so that people have a sense. Exactly. Like, there should be a color code or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, like, oh, you were predisposed to hate this. Or you were, or, uh, you know, vice yeah, versa. Yeah. This was like the best day of your life. And then right. you were just in a good mood and felt charitable. Um, yeah, and yeah. so you were, you were in the mood, you know, you were kind of like primed to say yes. But right. uh, ultimately people have to make calls. And so much of it has to do with timing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, right book, right time, right exactly. editor. Exactly, right. And right. then there is too, something to be said about just like, quality mm -hmm. of course of course like some books and some works of art i do feel are just like mm -hmm. undeniable yeah um certainly or they meet their moment like we're in a weird cultural moment mm -hmm. right now i don't know right. i wouldn't even dare to define it but it's got something to do with digital media and social media mm -hmm. and identity mm -hmm. um i feel like books and works of art that speak to that speak to what like where mm -hmm. the wider culture is, it seems like certainly more yeah. so than others, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you know, it's always changing. As soon as I say that it was probably yeah. on to the next, you can't write to that you obviously, or you'll just be chasing your tail. Um, but yeah, but some yeah. artists, like, I think, you know, like you say, you can't write to it, but some artists were doing it mm -hmm. when that moment hit mm -hmm. and then you see, right. That right. It's you know, it's a, it's a fit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I, uh, you know, that I wrote, my book before the me too moment, you know, kind of came, I mean, it came out right after my book sold, you know, and I remember thinking, Oh, this will be interesting, you know, to see how, if, if, if that affects re reception or anything like that, you know, just because here's yet another novel about, you know, from a white male author about male sexuality, you know, um, is, is that exactly what we don't need right now? <laughs> you know, and I was very well, and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll let other people decide if that's what we need or not. You know, I wrote it. I love this book. I, I don't, you know, was, you, you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, just, um, uh, quality, you know, I mean, I kind of just had a sense to myself that this book was for me, I, I just, I loved it. It was my little baby. And, and the, the editor, you know, De uh, Deb, Deb Futter at Celadon books, um, absolutely loved it. And she, and that whole team has been incredibly supportive, you know? So, um, so I've just, I've, you know, I talk about feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing and it's true. I don't. Um, but I do feel like they have my back, um, in a, in a great way. Um, and they've been incredibly supportive and really, really, really smart. Um, and they've helped me navigate, you know, some, you know, I remember in the, the, one of the editorial discussions we had, um, you know, my editor saying, you know, there's, I remember her saying like, there are, I think five or six cunts in this novel. And she's like, can we sort of dial it back? I sort of want to look back, you know, and, and, and I was like, yo, let me, let me think about that. You know? And I'm like, Oh, we've got it down to three cunts now. And I think I, I'll stand by every one of those. She's like, good. I just want to make sure, you know, yeah. we're putting our best foot forward. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah. Rambling answer, but, uh, they've been very supportive and this has been an interesting time. <laughs> um, um, and yeah. Well, I mean, and I mm -hmm. think you just, all you can really, you hit some <laughs> points that I think like, uh, like any author hopes to hit like one, 
you really love your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you loved it when you were writing it, you feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's out in the world and it's exciting. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, there's no like ambivalence. And then you have an agent mm-hmm. who you're enthusiastic about and who gets your work and who's good. Yeah. And you have, uh, you know, a publisher and an editor who, um, are the same, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's good. It. That's, that's what good. you want. Yeah. That's what you want. It's what you want. And then what about, uh, film stuff like this book? Mm -hmm. I feel like this book has some film potential. I could see where it could work. I think so. Uh, is that happening? Are you out there Mm -hmm. floating it around? And, Uh, you know, there's a, there's at Curtis Brown where uh, the agency where Catherine's at, there's a Hollywood agent, um, who, um, love is, loves a book, I think, and isn't excited about it. And so, you know, right when it sold, she, um, you know, sent it out all over the place and there was, we got a lot of interest. Um, I think I'm an unknown debut author, so no one is going to sort of take that yet you know to bet on it yet um so it's more wait and see um but uh but yeah there have there have been some some just a little bit of interest here and there um i've got a a, um an acquaintance who um who's a novelist and um and he uh is really interested in writing the screenplay for it um if if we you know get any um if it sells and if if that's an option if it's if there's some flexibility on who does that and he's been hustling um it's uh, like packaging though mm-hmm. you got to get like a certain mm-hmm. star attached and a director right, and, right you know i mean i think the i mean I, I feel like the rights could be sold but then that doesn't mean anything's going to happen for you know i mean i i talk like i know what the hell i'm talking about i don't know how this stuff this is what i've been told you've been in la a year you have this (laughs) right yeah i just want to put on sunglasses and ride in convertibles i think that's what it is and talking to yourself but um, yeah well i don't know i think there's some potential it's just again talk about time needing things Mm -hmm. to like break your way timing and unpredictability it's just such a crapshoot right it would be so cool but that's like a cherry on top of everything you know i mean i I would love it to happen like i um and i would not want to have anything to do with it Um, i was gonna say you mm -hmm. wouldn't want to write the screenplay absolutely not no no i don't know how to write screenplays and i feel like it's a totally different art form um and what i love is how people interpret it differently i mean even even just the audio book like the guy reads it totally differently than I read those lines, you know? Um, I think that's really cool, you know? So I think the coolest thing about if, if it were ever made into a film would be to see how someone else would interpret it. Yeah. Well, or mangle it or Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, I I talk now like, you know, like I wouldn't mind, but uh, no, I mean, I'm sure I I do have strong opinions. I'm sure I just don't know what they are yet. And Justin Bieber (laughs) starring role. Right. right. Um, yeah. So what about your upbringing? Like you, Mm -hmm. you said Georgia, Mm -hmm. you said Texas Mm -hmm. and like the Houston area. Yeah. Then you also talked about this, uh, this sort of, um, abandoned attempt at a novel that drew on family history that mm-hmm. was dark and violent. Mm-hmm. So there's gotta be some, some stories there. Like, what are you, what are you yeah. referring to? Um, it comes from, uh, so my family, uh, on my family's in middle of Georgia, Macon, Georgia is the town. That's where I was born. Um, and, uh, they just go back many, many, many generations, uh, on my dad's side before the revolution, um, on my mother's side, uh, right after the civil war. Um, is uh, German uh, immigrants. Um, so they lived in rural Georgia. The, the, the story I was, that I was trying to make into a novel was something that happened to my great grandfather, my grandfather, which is that they, um, they owned a uh, land. Um, they were, they were farmers, uh, in, um, the time of the, of tenant farming. And so they had, um, some, uh, black tenants that were living on their land. And this is true of, you know, they had neighboring farms, landowners, you know, this is just the region they lived in. The story as told by my 
that came down to me from my mother's side of the family is that um, the are my great great grandfather's neighbors uh, were very mean. I don't know what that means. They were just they were bad people. You know, that's all I know. And they treated their tenants terribly. And those tenants wanted to escape. And so they ran to my grandfather and said, um, help us get out of here. Can you help us? And he did. He helped them get get away. I don't know how that happened, but he did. That other tenant came and faced him, you know, faced off with him and said, you know, I know what you did and pulled a gun on him. And my great grandfather shot him and killed him. Um, my grandfather, who was a child at the time, witnessed it and saw it and always said, right. So your, your grandfather, you said witnessed, witnessed his, his father, my great grandfather shoot and kill this other. So he just had like a pistol on him. The guy, as the story was told, came to came to our, you know, my great grandfather's house and said, I'm going to kill you. I know what you did. You son of a bitch, you know, come on out, you know, and he comes out, you know, with a gun, of course, because, you know, this other guy's brandishing a gun and says, um, and, 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 he, and he kills him. Um, and my grandfather says he can remember, said, I mean, he died many, many years ago, but said he could remember, uh, uh, the man's chest caving in. He, that's, that was the image that stuck with him because it was a shotgun. And so all the, the shot went into his chest and he caved in and he went back, he flew back and landed on his back. Um, uh, and he was, my grand great grandfather was arrested and there was a trial and he was ultimately acquitted, um, of the murder. And, but, and, oh, and after that he went on to become a justice of the peace. Um, uh, what does that even mean? He was like a, it, I think a kind of like police officer essentially is what he was. Um, I think it, when he, when we moved to Macon, he was a police officer and also sold Watkins products door to door. Um, I'm probably mangling all the details. My mom will never listen to this anyway, so I don't care. It's fine. Um, yeah, you'd be surprised. I and, and I haven't actually haven't thought about this material in a long time too. So I'm probably, I may be getting some of those details wrong. Um, but a heavy but, story, but it was a heavy story and it involves what, what I thought that was very interesting about it was that it, um, you know, the, the, as, as my family would tell the story, it would be like, don't, but don't, this is n- not a story that we liked to tell because, because it was my, it was a one white landowner killing another person over mistreatment of the black tenants. And we don't want to be perceived as being inward lovers. Um, uh, and I remember thinking, God, that's fascinating. You know, yeah. just what, so many things going on in that story and so many levels, um, that, that, um, I haven't seen, you know, in, in other stories. Um, um, but now, you know, that's the, that's the story as told to me. I did a little research and, um, I couldn't find many of those. I could, I found the news stories where my great grandfather killed another guy. How do you find that? Uh, I had a librarian friend. <laughs> um, I, I did a lot of searching actually. Like microfiche or like, what is it? I guess so. Um, I, I searched for a long time, like, um, emailing, like, um, court records, people in the, you know, in the, those counties, um, and was getting nowhere. I tried to look in the Macon Telegraph's archives. Um, I couldn't find anything. Um, a couple of years later, a a librarian friend of mine, when I I had a fellowship, um, up to the Vermont studio center where I was working on this and, um, um, a librarian friend of mine just Doug and using her magical powers was able to find a few new stories. Um, that was that definitely the, the, that's my great grandfather. That's my, that's my you know, pictures. There were no pictures. Oh, okay. But yeah. just the story was told, but there's, but the, there were the names and, and the, te- the counties and all the stuff. Um, and in the, that new story, uh, it was, it was, it was something, it had nothing to do with tenants. It was, um, for some reason, never specified this other landowner wanted to 
kill was had been threatening my great great grandfather and um the the stories i read it seemed a lot more premeditated my great grandfather told my grandfather to wait by the well and he went with a pistol and killed the man and then put the pistol in the man's hand according to a witness um and then he was went to trial and was acquitted and and uh but point being it made him not look great you know and it had nothing to do the story said nothing to do about tenants and maybe that was you know maybe that was purposeful i don't know um but but the truth obviously is much more complicated than whatever story narrative came down from my family as um, it tends to be of course and like generational yeah. i mean like I, I was like as you're talking i'm thinking about how precious little i know about mm-hmm. my ancestry mm-hmm. <laughs> um my yeah. folks are from louisiana and i knew my grandparents and i have a lot of aunts and uncles and everything but beyond my grandparents mm-hmm. i never knew my great-grandparents mm. I just know very little. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Have you ever tried to look? And... No. And I'm, I'm paranoid about these, uh, 23 and me, like these genetic mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Cause I'm too. like, I don't want my DNA or whatever. My, I know. I don't want my, uh, I want that in like some database somewhere. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah. Feel so the same. I don't know how to get to it. I yeah. Mean, at some yeah. point, uh, yeah. maybe there'll be a service that isn't so like, yeah. Orwellian or something. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I, th- I think this is true of a lot of, I mean, I don't know generalizing but of southern families southern people anyway we think about history a lot history is you know that's um so my family talked about it a lot you know talked about where we'd come from and the old I feel, times I feel guilt. And stuff um i feel a sense of like carried guilt or, and, and like mm-hmm. i don't know the degree to which i should because i was raised in milwaukee mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah removed and mm-hmm. like uh, i have nothing to do with uh the dark parts of the south you know the southern past but I witnessed some ugly things growing mm-hmm. up, you yep. know, comments made by uncles or aunts oh, or oh God, yeah. you know, grandparents where you're just like, well, that's not right. Yeah. And, you know, you're trying to like parse that with like your love for them and it's mm-hmm. complicated mm-hmm. and weird. And, um, but I think even beyond guilt, um, I do have a sense of like generational responsibility to kind of like make it right mm-hmm. in some small way. Sure. Um, and interestingly, uh, I don't know if I've talked about this on this show before, but yeah, I've talked about psychedelics ad nauseum on this show. <laughs> um, like I read Michael Pollan's book, like very much like cool, in the pop yeah. mo- mode, but also like have been genuinely confused about them for years because uh, I sort of like experimented when I was in college, like pretty stupidly. Mm-hmm. And then after all these years went by, I was sort of like, I kind of want to do it again to like try to get it right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like yeah. I miss something vital. Yeah. And then you're reading these books and you're like, I definitely feel like I need to like yeah. reassess this. So I did. <laughs> and... uh it was like, it's a very intense experience. Wow. And, uh, at the, in, at the height of it or whatever, when I was like really into the, you know, the trance, yeah. uh, I kept seeing over and over again, images of African-American women and children. But I was like, I was looking down and they were like in holes. Oh fuck. And it sounds really dark mm-hmm. and awful. Like the trip was fine. Like mm-hmm. I, I sort of like anticipated that there would be there's always going to be weird stuff Mm -hmm. when you do that, you know? So I don't know. Like I was able to sort of hold it together. I wasn't freaking out or anything, but I was just sort of like curious more than anything. And then Mm -hmm. I felt a sense of embodiment where I was like, like all of a sudden I was like feeling like I was them. Mm -hmm. It's like this really powerful, deep sense of connection. I don't know if it was past lives. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to analyze it. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. was I experiencing past lives or was I somehow like seeing, um, the suffering rot, by um prejudice and racism 
mm-hmm. that maybe is carried. I have no idea. You know, wow. but it was, it was just yeah. so odd. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't thinking about that sort of thing going into it. Yeah. And then you want to hear the funny part? Sure. <laughs> Um, I, it was in here. I was wearing a sleep mask. I followed this entire protocol. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I had music playing like the whole thing. I had candles, you know? Oh man. And I just lay on this couch right here for like six hours and I took a lot, <laughs> which is what you're supposed to do. So I was really, um, you know, I was on a ride and at some point, uh, I just started crying. Mm. Like, like I, I've cried probably cumulatively like in a, in an intense way maybe 20 minutes in my entire adult life. Oh man. I mean like, you know, I, I've shed tears, yeah, yeah. but like, I'm just not a sobber. Sure. Sure. I yeah. was sobbing. Yeah. yeah. And like, I didn't realize it until suddenly like I took, I reached under my sleep mask. I was like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, at some point I, I was hugging a black woman mm-hmm. and I could like, it was like her hair. I could feel it. And mm-hmm. like, I could smell like the shampoo, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I was crying and I was like, and she pulled away. It was Oprah. <laughs> I shit you not. And I, when I say it was Oprah, like it was her okay. and she was like, it's okay. <laughs> and oh that was God. the point at which I started laughing and like realized that I was laughing. And I think like it was a moment when I sort of like regained a, a foothold uh-huh. in consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's fucking weird. Oh my man. God. These experiences are weird. There was a lot to unpack there. I have absolutely no, no yeah. where to begin. What does this mean? Can that's we un- amazing. Can we unpack my weird uh, yeah. psyche? But oh my I God. Like, I, know, I, did, I did some LSD in high school and in, in my first year of college and, and had a rough one that I was like, I am never doing this again. And I, yeah. never, I was clearly not doing it right. But um, it's, but, like, uh, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. No, no. And uh, you know, it's not to be taken lightly. Um, but I did my homework. I don't know. Well, wow. Maybe I, wow. Maybe I just had like I got lucky. It could have yeah. gone worse, but I uh, wow. I thought about it for a long time. Wow! And uh, Oprah showed up, man. And it was right. just so fucking weird, man. It was because like it sounds really silly, and I totally get it. <laughs> but like when it was happening, oh, I get no, yeah. I was just like, what the fuck, you yeah, know? Like, and it, yeah. it was just like this, uh, yeah, this bizarro world. So that's that's interesting. Anyway, uh, back to you in Georgia and Texas. Yeah. So you have this story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from your great grandfather that sort of carried through the generations. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't sound like you stayed in Georgia very long after you were born. So then you moved to Texas pretty shortly thereafter. Yeah. Uh, when we were, when I was three, we moved out to Houston, Texas. Um, but Georgia looms large with me because, um, I spent my summers and Christmases there. Like I would spend a month and a half, two months in Georgia every summer. That's oh, hot. Um, uh, it's hot. Yeah. It's very hot, but I loved it. I mean, I loved it so much. And so I loved my family there and, um, and, it was always, it always had this, since it was separated from my normal school life, it always had this sort of gauzy glow to it, you know? You're like hunting um, pheasants and stuff? What are you uh, doing? No, I mean, you're hanging out, I'm, I'm hanging out on porches and, you know, looking at lightning bugs, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. R- but running through the woods and, you know, and just, but, and also going to museums and, and traveling and going fishing, a lot of fishing, you know, we... Uh, you know, uh, go up to the Smoky Mountains and, you know, it's just wonderful. I mean, I had a I had fabulous I had an, an aunt, Aunt Jackie, who was my mother's uh, sister, um, who uh, never married and didn't have children. And so she adored my brother and me. And she's like the cool aunt. She's great. Yeah, she's amazing. And so um, uh, and so she we, I did a lot of things with her and I stayed with my grandmother on my father's side. And um and, uh, and yeah, just great memories from it. Um, so I, my fictional, eye often turned toward that, you know, from the time I was a teenager trying to write stories, you know, um, I, I would turn to that and it always, as a, as a, a adult writer trying to, you know, trying to find the good stuff, you know, having re- 
dutifully read Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullers and, all right. and the like and Faulkner <laughs> trying to find, Ooh, okay, what's my, what's my angle on this stuff, you know? And that's why I really think, I mean, the story that, you know, that I told, you know, um, and probably mangled, um, uh, that comes from my, from, from the, from my family's past, uh, it seemed like an interesting gift, you know, for, as a writer, um, sure, yeah. but ultimately, you know, I realize now that, um, it has nothing to do with me. Honestly, I have no connection to that. What the hell, you know, it's in my family's past, but I never knew those people. I knew my grandfather. I have no connection to those tenants. I have nothing to say about them really uh, from, from an intellectual standpoint. It's interesting to me, but I grew up in the woodlands, Texas in a, uh, my family was always lower middle-class. We were not, we were, uh, we were not well off by any stretch of the imagination, but we had a great deal of privilege living in this nice neighborhood in Houston. I went to a nice school district. Uh, the most urgent dramas of my life ha began to happen. Um, in my teenage years when I lost my virginity and started having sex for the first time. And I was very much, a, I was in a heavy metal band. And so I thought I was awesome, you know, and, 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 <laughs> and I had girlfriends and I, you know, flaunted it on stage, you know, and, and, and what would you read the singer? What would I was the lead singer and songwriter, man. Um, what was your band called? Infinite eruption <laughs> with two R's eruption, you know? Yeah. Uh, we were like a goth metal sort of, I had an operatic voice when I sang kind of a Queens, right? Kind of feel to it. This was in the early nineties. Um, song ladies can't resist. And no, oh, no, I had hair, metal. like, you know, hair down, down to the, you know, down uh, to the middle of my back, you know, and, uh, just God, man, I was this shit, you know, I thought so. Uh, I wrote my lyrics were poetry, obviously, you know, what like, were some of your song titles? Uh, flight of the burning stallion was our great, like power ballad. Um, uh, son of fire. Um, uh, uh, morning sun, but it was morning spelled as in sad uh, morning. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just, you know, it was, I mean, yeah, it was so great. Uh, and so we played clubs in Houston, you know, starting when we were 14 years old till like 17, 18, you know, uh, we, we, we played clubs, man. And it's like Bill Hicks. He was like, Bill Hicks was yeah, doing comedy yeah, in clubs yeah. when he was like 15. Yeah. Yeah. He's a Houston boy. <clears throat> really? <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, he might have lived in Woodland. You said that rings the about. Woodlands. The Woodlands. That's the name of the town or the neighborhood. I mean, it's, uh, it's the town. It's a, it was a master plan community. Uh, it started in 1977 or 78. So okay. yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so th that was my life. Okay, you know, it wasn't sharecropping you know, in Jim Crow South. You know, yeah. now, I'm not saying I, I don't mean to say. Of course, you can't access. I mean, that's the whole thing about it's fiction is an empathic art form. You're supposed to, you know, you can, you can, I, th I think you're free to enter any life, you know, if you can, you know, um, and write about it. Uh, it's totally, maybe I'm supposed to totally write fine. a book about Oprah. Maybe, <laughs> I mean, maybe this, this, this is your subconscious is speaking My to you. My creative license is uh, yeah. very large. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but for me, ultimately, I think that's why I couldn't access it. I mean, it was, those weren't, you know, those weren't the urgent dramas of my life. And so with Kate May, I'm, you know, was tapping into stuff that I knew a little bit more about, you know, um, Wow. And so yeah. then where'd you go to college? I went to the Uni university of Texas in Austin. Oh, you did. Okay. Yep. Cause you said then you went to New York after college. Yeah. What'd yeah. you, what'd you study at Texas in uh, journalism? So you were thinking writer, thinking writer all, all, all around. Yeah. The, from, from the beginning, um, I always wanted to be a writer. I, I never expected to like make it as a, I didn't know how you would make it as a living. You know, I didn't, I, I knew nothing about how to become a writer, including, but when I went to college, I thought like, journalism. That's a good way. I want to write novels. Let's start with journalism, you know, right, like, I mean, right. and so, um, uh, it wasn't until really, um, 
after I, I moved to New York, uh, I mean, even then I was so naive. I mean, I graduated from college and I thought, okay, I still want to be a writer. Well, all the publishers are in New York. I'm going to move to New York, you know, um, which looking back is a kind of a naive thing to do. Um, but not but, a bad, not bad instincts. I guess not. I mean, a lot of people do it for probably the same reason, I guess. Um, I just, I guess like the question I would pose <laughs> to you is like, cause I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I always have some regret that I didn't mm-hmm. live in New York when I was young. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have gone there for like a couple yeah. of years in my twenties. Yeah. Like, cause that's ah. when you should do it when mm-hmm. you're just like, you know, willing to live in a shoebox and, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, just go have fun. But yeah, it's great. Um, did you, from the experience get access that you otherwise would not have had that proved valuable when it comes to like writing or was the exposure to the literary industry in mm. some way like, you know, irreplaceable to you in terms of your development or your professional mm-hmm. arc? Um, it was not, no, it, it had to do more with, um, uh, time and, um, moving to New York was really exciting, but I also didn't really know anybody and I'm shy and I didn't get to know anybody. So the five years that I lived there, what I had, happened to infinite interruption? You could, well, that was long. <laughs> no, I should. You could be like, by that. the way, I'm the lead singer in infinite interruption. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of us. Yeah. Well, you know, funny you should say that I was still writing songs at that time. The one person I did know was my uh, really close friend of mine, Ken. Uh, we used to write songs together and, um, right when we moved to New York, we, cause he, we moved, I moved up and he moved five months later. Um, and we, so we got a place together. Um, we joined this songwriting group in um, in, oh, what is it? Greenwich, Greenwich village. Um, and it's, it was this little folk songwriting group that had been going on since the seventies. Um, and it included, I, we went there the first night we heard that like Suzanne Vega was a part of this group. And we, in our first night we went there and sure enough, there she was. And this guy, Jack, she's like, she's like, goes like, thanks Suzanne for putting that in my head. Yeah. Well, turns out she's actually, she's an awesome person and really brilliant and an amazing songwriter. She will not remember who I am, of course, if she ever hears this, but, um, but, but for a few years there, we were a part of this little songwriting group and it was basically a songwriting workshop, this tiny, tiny little living room. Um, you'd bring a song in a week. Uh, uh, you'd pass around a guitar and you'd bring the lyrics in and you'd, you'd, you'd play your song and they would, and then they would workshop the, the song the same way you would so do like everyone would like everyone would do an iteration or what would it be? Like people no, would... no, you, you would bring your song in. I would, I, you know, I, like I would play my song and, and, and then the group would discuss it, discuss it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just like a workshop, you know? And then, you know, and so that first night we came and we, you know, Ken and I both had songs and we played it and there we are being workshopped by Suzanne Vega and uh, the guy, Jack Hardy is the guy who led the workshop. Um, I'm you're, getting, you're like, you're like, no, it's great. You're, <laughs> like, you're like, no, 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 no. It's M O U R N. That's right. You're not getting it. This has nothing to do with the actual morning. Okay. But I, anyway, I say all that just that has actually nothing to do with my like writing life, you know, really it was just, that was a kind of a sideline thing I was doing aside from Ken and aside from like my coworkers, I worked at a life insurance company. Um, so I didn't have to worry about money too much, you know, and I could write in the evenings. I knew no one. And so all I did on the weekends, I had never had weekend plans. Um, I would just, you know, I, when I first got to New York, I was working on this, like looking back on now, it's so dumb, but it was this like sci-fi epic novel that I thought was really cool. Um, I realized it was complete crap and I threw it away. What was it called? It had no title. It had no title. Um, and it's something hit me that I just didn't know what I was doing. I had no real grounding in literature. Um, I, I wanted to be a writer, but I had no idea what that meant what it entailed and who I was as a reader even. And so I remember I bought the Norton anthology of American literature, volume two, you know, that starts in the, you know, from the modern era 
and just start open it and started reading, you know, and if the authors that would speak to me, I'd go out and get those books. Um, and for five years more, well, let's say three, three to four years, you know, after I dumped my sci-fi epic novel, um, I did nothing but read and write. That um, sounds smart. And that's all I did. And I still knew, no I knew enough to apply to MFA programs. Um, I took a few workshops at the new school in New York, um, where to get a sort of sense of how I would feel about workshops and to get a sense of like how the stuff I was writing, how it would, you know, go. And I got some encouragement, a lot of encouragement actually. And so I applied to grad schools and that's really when my, you know, education began 28. I was 28 years old when I started at Emerson. Okay. And which author spoke to you out of that anthology? Um, I, uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor, um, of course was one of the ones she, she, uh, lived most of her life about 30 minutes from where I was born. Um, and her, um, her voice, you know, uh, was so familiar to me that that really, that really struck me. Um, um, authors that I would not I would not consider in any way sort of, um, influential to me now, but I got way off into like Garcia Marquez and, um, Jose Saramago. Um, I read Moby Dick for the first time and it's still my happy place book. I, I reread it like every few years. Why? I just worship that freaking weird ass book. It's like the most bonkers book ever. I especially love the Cytology chapters, you know, yeah. I love that they're like, not one, but like three chapters on pictorial representations of whales, you know? So, uh, so I, you know, love that. Um, I, I don't know. I just read all the classics, you know? Um, I think, um, Raymond Carver, I first read in that time. It's so cliche to say that, you know? Um, but he, he also, I mean, I, just, I, I think any sort of like writer of my generation and, you know, literary writer wanting to write short stories and literary novels, you know? there's a time when they come a male, I should say to add to all of that comes across Raymond Carver and gets your mind blown, blown by cathedral and a small good thing. You well, know? but I think it makes it, yeah. it makes it seem like it's doable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Right. Yes. It's like, yeah. it's so the, mm -hmm. the language is so, uh, mm -hmm. spare and, you know, simple and direct and it tricks you into thinking it's yeah. easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you want to copy it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it wasn't until I think grad school that I really found the authors that, um, <clears throat> that, truly changed my life, I think, and are the ones that are sort of remain with me all these years later. And that's, it was in grad school that I found Alice Monroe, for example, and, um, and, uh, Marilyn Robinson, um, who are two of my big heroes. Um, and, um, and, you know, many others beside, um, but, um, but why, what, what about those two? I loved Alice Monroe for her, um, story structures, her, her, the narratives, um, the way she structured her, her stories blew my mind. Um, particularly the story, um, I think of my favorite example is a small good thing. Um, or not that's Raymond Carver, a uh, friend of my youth, sorry. Um, where she, you know, she's telling you begin by getting a story about, um, you know, uh, her mother, um, the character, the narrator's mother's life. Um, uh, you think you're getting a kind of engrossing story about, about that. And then the story in the middle turns on a dime and it's about something else. It's about the narrator's relationship to her mother. And the narrator says, that's the way my mother would tell it. I'm going to retell it this way. Um, and then by the end, there are a couple other twists and turns. She just does. She's a way, she has this amazing ability to like sink you into a narrative and then like turn the whole world around. And you didn't, you didn't see it coming. Um, her, the way she plays with perspective and point of view, um, and also the plainness of her language, you know, it's unadorned. There are no jazz hands in her language. And I love that. Um, I love that. It's just like, 
the stuff that's good. It's the precise. She's so precise and unadorned. And um, the fireworks are in what she does with stories. Um, and she, it, it hit me that she was like, not, you know, like, um, you know, not like other writers that I'd read who were sort of quote unquote, like experimental, you know, who I still love, you know, Alice Monroe was like the most experimental writer I'd ever seen. I'd never seen anyone do the things she did with language or yeah. with stories, you know? And what about Marilyn? It was just that voice that the mood, her sentences are beautiful. You know, I, housekeeping is one of those books that I reread every couple of years as well. I absolutely worship that book. It never gets old to me. Um, the sentences are beautiful. She writes the most beautiful sentences I've ever seen. Well, there you go to me. Um, and I think she, she just kind of infects my style too. You know, I kind of always, I wish I could just write like her, you know, if, if Marilyn Robinson wrote like super sexually explicit stuff, you know, like in, in that wait planet, till, wait till, what did it, wait till she publishes her diaries. <laughs> yeah, no, right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'm so sure. Um, but anyway, yeah. Wow. Um, but I, you know, I write, I read really widely. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that's influenced me as a writer, but I don't, I don't, read like i write um i'm reading a lot of science right now i'm reading a lot of science books that's what i'm obsessed with right now you got to go where yeah. you're but you got to go mm -hmm. where you want to go yeah i mm -hmm. feel like if you force yourself mm -hmm. to read what you think you're supposed to be reading it's, yeah it's a, it's a bad formula yeah yeah but yeah. You, it sounds like you're always you always have your nose in a book like you read mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. every yeah. day you make time i uh, try i mean these you know life is different now uh, with child care and um and everything else um i'm a slow reader a very slow reader and i need to concentrate. Um, so I don't, I'm not like a book a week reader, you know, like, like other, like almost everyone else I know who's a, who's a successful writer. I, I take my time with books and I always have. Wow. And so I need a lot of time and I don't have a ton of, ton of alone time now these days. No, you can't read a book a week without, with a shrieking child, like in your ear. I can't. How do your you, problem? Do, do you do it? You have two children. No, I told you when you got here, I was like reading in preparation for more interviews that I've got to do. And I'm listening to an audio book at two times speed while I'm walking my dog. Right. 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 Okay. That's how I, and I'm just like, I'm insane. I'm just, I'm like trying to follow this person jabbering in my ear. Yeah. Yeah. It's like six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I'm just like, what am I doing oh, in my life? God. Yeah, <laughs> man. You know, I was, I was like, I was, I was partway through the third volume of Proust's, like with the tra new translations that are coming out now, you know, when Audrey arrived in the world Yeah, and I'm just never going to get back there again. You know, I'm, I don't know when I'm ever going to get back to a place. It, where it'll I settle. Just, I mean, she, how old is she too? She's almost, she'll be two in August. Yeah, I mean, once she gets going, she'll start school soon mm -hmm. this year, right? She starts school this summer. I, think, I mean, she's, yeah, she's in like kind of like a preschooly school two days a week. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that'll expand and yeah. then it'll start to get a little bit saner. Okay. But Thanks, not uh, too much. Yeah. And then you got to go to like birthday parties on the weekend. Right. Play dates. <laughs> God, man. I want to like pick your brain. I need advice. I need advice. You need Klonopin is what you need. <laughs> um, yeah. So then you go to, um, what was it, Emerson? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where, like, I feel like that's the case for a lot of people because by the time you get to where you want to do an MFA, like you're ready to focus is what mm -hmm. you really are. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be serious about it. Right. And to be in, an, in a graduate program with other people who are of a similar mind is great right you have a community mm -hmm. you yep. get to kind of be in it right right and uh, did you teach while you were there or no i didn't no okay. no i taught after um i worked on the literary journal uh redivider um, okay. while i was while i was at uh 
at Emerson. And um, you know, Elisa Gabbard, mm-hmm. was she a classmate of yours? She was never, a, she, I mean, we were in the same cohort. She was, she was a year, I think a year or two ahead of me. Um, okay. she was a poet. Um, and I was in the fiction program. Um, but we were all like, we were all kind of in the same orbit. Um, I was very lucky. I mean, Emerson's a good school, but, um, I was really lucky to arrive at Emerson with an incredibly good cohort. Um, Elisa Gabbert was there. Um, Laura Vandenberg was there. Um, James Scott was there. Cam Terwilliger was there. Um, um, Kathleen Rooney was there. Um, uh, there was an amazing amount of, like, I, I didn't know much about poetry, but I, but there was an incredibly good crop of poets there. Uh, Chris Tonelli is another, um, and, uh, uh, and so we just had this enormously huge, talented, intimidatingly talented cohort. Um, uh, not just my year, but the years ahead and behind. And, and, and they all, you know, for a long time, we all just stayed there in Boston in Somerville or Jamaica plain and, um, or Cambridge. And, um, and that's been my life for most of the past 14 years, you know, the people that I met, you know, Emerson then kind of bled into Grub Street, which was like right next door to Emerson was Grub Street. Uh, so you had the, the, the grad school, and then you had this nonprofit creative writing center that itself was just full of these amazing uh, writers. Um, and it was just kind of it just I lucked out on just that community. So I always had that support and um, and just really good people to sort of, you know, we were all really supported each other, but also really wanted to impress each other, you know? And, and, um, and we used to, there was this dive bar, the Tam we used to go to every night. I mean, I basically met my wife, you know, this, you know, uh, was she in the program too? She was in the program. She was in uh, nonfiction. Um, got it. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, just lots of parties and, you know, hanging out and just, uh, it was just, it was an amazing, amazing time. And really, I mean, until Audrey came, that's kind of, you know, that's, I was able to sort of be a, dissolute you know youth and then adult until 41 years old and then former, right now former lead singer of infinite interruption <laughs> exactly man I just let the party keep going uh no 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 i'm a dad so <laughs> yeah well um, it's good though yeah. man it has its own rewards no it's it's actually wonderful it's wonderful um, and with like in the adjustment to la because it feels mm-hmm. like very it's very different mm-hmm. I mean, it must have been a, like a big shock to your system yeah. to suddenly be an el segundo mm-hmm and yeah like for real winters just like it's just the same weather every day right <laughs> <laughs> well i'm starting to notice a different like now where it's gloomy you know something this is the june, june, gloom. june gloom yeah, yeah. um subtle yeah. Var- like subtle that there actually is different weather mm-hmm. it's just like very subtle variations yeah, and you yeah. learn to be like uh attuned to it when you live here yeah and it's actually like i i sort of look forward to the fall i know mm-hmm. right around halloween you know the air mm-hmm. will be a little smoky from like a a wildfire. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> some leaves do fall, oh, you know, God. you might yeah. get like some Santa Ana winds, but like you can start to, you can start to pick it out. I mean, right. it's, it's getting a little bit more unpredictable, but yeah. Um, and different flowers bloom at different times as always. I mean, flowers are always blooming, but different ones are blooming. At yeah. Different we just times got through year. Jasmine seeds. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Jasmine bloom. oh yeah. No, we have a big Jasmine book bush near our house actually. Um, yeah, no, it's been an adjustment. I mean, uh, the Boston area, I've never felt more at home anywhere in my entire life. Like, it's just, I love it so, so, so much. So leaving it was extremely difficult. Um, um, and I just feel so out of place here, you know, yeah, um, right. but I love it. I mean, it's it really, it's beautiful here. And I love being on the South Bay area, uh, South shore. I don't know what they FC. I don't even know what to call it. But South Bay. South Bay. Okay. Um, I love that area. I love being near the beach. That's a wonderful thing. Um, the ocean is my favorite ecosystem. So I love being near that. Um, and, um, so I just, it's going to take a while to sort of feel comfortable my own skin here. Find the niche. Yeah. You I've would, got this amazing you, farmer's tan. <laughs> <laughs> would you ever go back to Boston? You think? Uh, I would. Yeah. In a, in a heartbeat. Um, 
but uh but our lives are here i mean we it's this is where like living in boston with a baby would be unbearably difficult right now um, oh, having the family uh support is awesome um is really because we we have a lot of friends in boston and more and more of those friends are having children you know but we would be on our own you know there's no support right. um, my family's in texas you know hers are here so um and you're not going to move back to Texas. Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had friends who've had like, uh, you know, they, they're married and they've had very hard line negotiations about geography. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, mm-hmm. like we're going to do this, yeah. but like, I will not move <laughs> to Duluth. Like yeah. we're not doing it or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Nothing yeah. against Duluth. But. Yeah. Um, well, um, and then you're, do you have anything in the works or is it kind of just like floating right now? I'm trying. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very much a process guy. I'm very much a, um, you know, I always quote the, um, or paraphrase the, um, Flaubert's thing about, uh, keep your life orderly so your mind can go wild. Um, and my, my life is just not orderly right now. Um, but order is slowly beginning to appear, you know, um, uh, Katie's got, is back to working full time, which is great. Audrey is in school two days a week now. Um, I we're at our in my in-laws house. So I don't have a place to be, you know, I don't have a office. Um, so, but I do now have like a rented little office space, you know, um, and in one of those shared spaces kind of things, uh, that I go to, you know, as many times as I can. Um, so order is beginning to, you know, I think when we find our own place, when she starts to go to school, then I have a routine and it is not obviously not going to be the routine I had back in Boston, but it'll be a different routine. And so that's where my focus is really on trying to create the conditions to be productive again. Um, I'm certainly trying when I'm in, when I, that dedicated office space is not, it's not for writing emails. It's not for doing Kate May related stuff. It's for doing new work. So I get in that office space, I put on noise canceling headphones, you know, and I just do what I, I pull on whatever threads I have, you know? Um, and I've got, I work in Scrivener and I have tons and tons and tons of fragments of just things. Um, uh, and I just, sort of pull, it's like pulling at whatever thing is interesting me at the time. Um, and lately I've been feeling a little bit more, there's something where the, 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 tr- I'm starting to feel that charge a little bit on one of those threads. Um, Which one? Can you tell me about it? No, absolutely. I can't. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those like sworn to secrecy until, until it is something, you know, I get um, it. Yeah, I get it. It's I like, just, it's preemptive. You don't mm-hmm. want to, you don't want to like ruin it or what, yeah. things could change. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably it will change it'll, next week. It'll be a different thing. Um, but, uh, but, but I'm starting to feel that, that the thing, the, the feeling I love, which is just like, Oh, Oh yes. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm going to keep thinking about this when I walk, when I walk away. Former heavy metal band lead singer. Yeah. Moves to El Segundo. <laughs> gets a farmer's tan. <laughs> uh, well, it's good to meet you, man. Thanks, man. Congrats so on, the, you, on the success of your, uh, of your novel. Enjoy, enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. I'm trying. Yes. You know, enjoy your baby. She's two. That's a two is actually a good age. I She's think. amazing. She's They're like so half adorable. baby, half yeah. person. Mm-hmm. It's kind mm-hmm. of a cute age. And, yep. uh, yep. hopefully we'll run into each other here in uh, Southern California. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. Okay, everybody. There you go. That is chip cheek. His debut novel is called Cape May. It's available from Celadon Books. You can find Chip online at chipcheek.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at chipcheek. Once again, the novel is called Cape May. Go get your copy. Go get it. Snatch it up. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. 
If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at other Tell me what you think. Tell me a story. Don't forget about the other people with Brad Listy app. This show has its own official app. It is free. Go get the app. It's free. So yeah, it's interesting the way that trauma works on us, the stuff of our lives. You can't bury it. That's maybe the biggest lesson of all. You might think you can, but it finds its way out, you know? You might think you can go around it, when the truth of the matter is, is that even if you feel like you are going all the way around it, you're right in it. So you just got to go through it. I had an odd 20s. I realize that now. Sort of monk-like. Next week on the program, I will be talking with J. Ryan Stradle. He'll be back on the show for a second time. He is celebrating the publication of his new novel, The Lager Queen, uh, the Lager Queen of Minnesota. You almost have to say that title with a Minnesota accent just to get it out. The Lager Queen of Minnesota. J. Ryan Stradle, of course, is the author of uh, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, which was a big debut bestseller. This is the follow-up. It has been earning incredible rave reviews and uh, such a good guy and a pillar of the literary community good people good conversation stay tuned for that one coming up next week so I hope you're doing well out there hope the summer is going well stay cool If you place your attention on something difficult, it weakens its power. Just your attention. Like, you don't have to grapple with it or pull it apart or answer to it or figure it out or criticize it, but just watch it, hold it, see it, call it by name, sit there. (laughs) 